Uh, there are quite a few websites on the internet which are grouped around the same idea or theme, summarised by a question. It's this. If you could invite anyone, past or present, to dinner, who would you choose? And there's a huge variety of responses uh, covering the whole spectrum of interest of the people who respond to the question. Here's a few. William Shakespeare. Sir Isaac Newton. Julius Caesar. Leonardo da Vinci. Ludwig van Beethoven. Mohandas K. Gandhi. Princess Diana. Even David Beckham. But top of the list for many people, and I would think especially Christians, would be Jesus. Just think what a wonderful occasion it would be if all your friends could be invited and Jesus was the guest of honour. Wouldn't that be wonderful? However, before you were to issue him such an invitation, you might be wise to examine the record of the parties he actually attended when he was on earth, which you'll find recorded in the four gospel accounts in the New Testament part of the Bible. We've been following one of them, called, written by a doctor called Luke, called, we've entitled the series, Good News of Great Joy for All People. Uh, and we've discovered already that Jesus willingly attends all sorts of celebrations from all sorts of people. However, these are not always occasions of great joy for all people. And today we're going to look at a story in which we encounter Jesus as what I would call the disturbing dinner guest. So let's read the story first of all from that perspective. Uh, you'll find it in Luke 7, 36 to 50. It will help to have a Bible. There are some in the pews. If you haven't got one, just ask them to pass one to you if you can't see one nearby. And we're going to read a story about a disturbing dinner party and a disturbing dinner guest. Luke 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, religious leaders, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed him 500 denarii, 
and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a wonderful story from God's wonderful word. Now, when you've got the Bible open, notice how it begins. Uh, in fact, notice what came just before, if you were here last week for the series. Uh, Luke's just recorded that Jesus was criticised for attending parties with the wrong sorts of people. Verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend, tax collectors and sinners. The critics who said this were the religious establishment. However, they were not averse to inviting Jesus to their dinner parties, and Jesus was not averse to accepting their invitations. Luke records two other occasions when he accepted invitations from the same sort of people, the Pharisees. So, as we see in this story, here we begin, an invitation accepted. Verse 6. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Uh, Howard Marshall, in his commentary on Luke, writes this, Jesus displayed no reticence in accepting the invitation. The fact that he was especially interested in despised people did not mean he was uninterested in the more respected members of society. They too needed the gospel. However, the fact that Jesus was especially interested in despised people in society meant that despised people in society were especially interested in Jesus. And it's this which leads to this first big disturbance at the dinner party. We can describe it, at least from the perspective of those who'd made the invitation, of the other guests, we can describe it as an embarrassing exhibition. Verses 37 to 39. Now, in order to understand the dynamics of the disruption, uh, you need to kind of try and picture the scene, because it's not like one of our dinner parties, all right? In normal families in the Middle East at that time, probably still today, uh, when you had a meal, families had meals sitting up round the table, much like we do. But for special meals with guests, the arrangements were different and much more relaxed. Uh, 
those attending would recline on low sofas or large cushions which were grouped around the table upon which the food was brought and served. Now, food was always eaten, as it still is in the East, in many parts of the world, was only eaten with your right hand because your left hand is dirty. So, when you reclined at the table, you have to, I was going to get a sofa in and demonstrate, but anyway, um, if you imagine, you recline, therefore, on your left hand and elbow, like this, affecting the microphone now, and your feet, which were also unclean, a, a sort of, I can't do it in the full foot, but <laughs> <laughs> your feet are behind you, sort of at an angle, so they're behind you. Everybody, everybody got the picture? Yeah? Okay, And a leisurely meal with conversation would follow, sometimes lasting several hours. Now, the meal was normally held in a large room. Often it would be a large room surrounded by a sort of courtyard. And it would have, because it was hot, there's no air conditioning or anything like that, they had open windows and open doors. Many parts of the world where I've worked, it's very similar still today. Now, people who were not guests were allowed to enter and stand outside or even to stand or sit against the walls. And even poor people could come along and hope for some food left over at the end. So, there were no bouncers to stop unwelcome guests. So, the woman who enters the story, you need to understand this, is not a gate crasher. She, as we'll discover, is someone who has already encountered or at least heard Jesus and been profoundly affected as a result. So when she hears that Jesus is in this particular house on this particular evening, she decides she's going to go there and do something. She wants to express her gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for her and so she comes along with a, a small alabaster jar of precious ointment that women often hung with a, with, a, with a string or something from their necks. She intends to anoint Jesus. Now, at this point comes the embarrassing bit for the host. Have you got the picture of the scene? All these men reclining on cushions, eating a leisurely meal. What happens next? So long as she remains in the background, she and the others can be ignored. The men can carry on talking as though they weren't there. Just ignore them. They're not part of the dynamic, the social interaction. But as soon as she moves out of that zone and approaches the table and stands behind Jesus, her presence interrupts the meal and the conversation. She is guilty of intruding into the conversation and the proceedings. Not only that, she doesn't just stand there quietly. Suddenly she begins to weep. And the Greek word used here is not the word, you know, she was just having a little quiet sob. It's a loud expression of weeping. Now, you still got the picture of these men having this nice meal? This woman comes in and suddenly begins to weep. And it's so bad that her tears begin to pour out and wet the feet of Jesus. And with nothing available to dry his feet, no towel or anything like that, she does something even worse. She loosens her hair 
and begins to dry the feet of Jesus with her hair. Now, in those days, women didn't cut their hair. It was their glory. But they, they tied their hair up and covered their heads. For a woman to loosen her hair before anyone other than her husband was regarded as very shameful. In fact, soon after this, it was one of the grounds for divorce. She loosened her hair in front of someone who wasn't her husband. And then she completes what she intended and compounds the offence by taking the jar, breaking the narrow neck and pouring this expensive perfume over the feet of Jesus. Now, if you know the New Testament, you'll know that Matthew, Mark and John, the other three Gospels, record a similar story about a similar sort of incident. This is a different story. It's a different woman. And in the other story, the big criticism is how much money she's wasted by pouring out the perfume. Put that story out of your mind. That's not the story here. That's not the issue here. The focus here is on how inappropriate her action is. And what compounds it? What makes it so bad... What exacerbates it is her background. We're told that she's a woman who had lived a sinful life. It's probable that as soon as she comes in, everyone looks up and goes, uh-uh, because they know who she is. Almost certainly, not definitely, but almost certainly she's a prostitute. She's very well known to everybody in the town. If she's not, she's certainly a woman of a very disreputable reputation. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, the religious guardians of the truth, she's put in that classification, she is a, inverted commas, sinner. Bad person. And the host, you can imagine the host, at this point, this is why I said at the beginning, be careful if you invite Jesus to your dinner party. The host who was a Pharisee himself, as soon as he saw what had happened, and as soon as he saw what Jesus does or doesn't do, he immediately is able to categorise Jesus. At least he's able to place him as someone who is definitely not a prophet. His deduction is, a genuine prophet would know that this woman was a sinner, because it was believed that a man who came from God could read hearts and minds and had the gift of insight. And if a genuine prophet knew her reputation, he would run a mile as soon as he saw a woman like this. Or he would push her away, or he'd just step back in horror. He would not allow her to touch him. Let alone to wet and dry his feet with her hair, and then anoint him with perfume. Therefore, QED, therefore Jesus is not a prophet. He cannot be a prophet. Now, it's probable that the reason that this Pharisee invited Jesus for this meal was in fact to check him out with his friends. To check out his claims. Some believe that this was a Sabbath meal and that Jesus may have spoken in their synagogue. And uh, somewhat like in some churches, used to be, or probably still is, where they have roast preacher for lunch, you know. If so, they are no longer in any doubts about Jesus. He isn't a prophet. Can't be. And certainly not, if you look at verse 39, some texts read, 
the prophet. Because the Jewish people had, knew a great saying in Deuteronomy 18.15 in the, in the law of Moses that Moses promised that the Lord would raise up the prophet, the coming one, the special one. No way. He's not a prophet. Instead, we've made a dreadful mistake inviting him along by causing this terribly embarrassing incident with this woman's words and actions. Uh, this woman's actions, she didn't say anything. It's just, you can hear them saying to yourself, it's just what we said about him. This man eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. And now he's brought them into our dinner party. No doubt the host is wishing the floor would swallow him up for his terrible mistake inviting such a person as Jesus to eat with him and his friends. Now, I guess at this point, most of us would pass over and condemn the Pharisees for their lack of compassion. We wouldn't criticise Jesus for doing this because this is what we think Jesus should do. But not in those days. And before we pass on, perhaps we should reflect on a very interesting fact. And it's this. How few Christians are criticised for the wrong kind of people that they mix with? One of the main criticisms of Jesus was that he mixed with the wrong sort of people. How many Christians do you know who are accused of the same thing? And are we upset when such people disturb our dinner parties or our church life? Well, this host has written Jesus off as a prophet because he thinks he doesn't know who this woman is. What he is about to learn is that Jesus not only knows the woman and who she is, he also knows Simon, the man who is judging him, even though he hasn't expressed his thoughts out loud. But rather than turning and addressing his host directly, Jesus uses one of his parables to make the point. Uh, it's a story that the Pharisee is about to learn has a sting in the tail. So, let's turn to the second disturbance. After the embarrassing incident, we come to a pointed parable. I would imagine at this particular point the conversation has somewhat dried up at the dinner party. As this woman, perhaps you can only just hear this woman sobbing and weeping as she anoints the feet of Jesus. And the guests are all thinking what Simon is thinking, but no one's saying it out loud. The silence is broken as Jesus turns to the Pharisee and we learn his name. Simon, he says, personal, uses his name. Simon, got something to say to you. And Simon, ever the polite host, says, tell me, teacher, uses the term of respect to Jesus. And rather than tackling him head on, Jesus tells a very short and simple parable. You don't really need to explain it. I put it on the PowerPoint, but you can ignore it, really. It's a, what's called the parable of the two debtors. Jesus tells a story about two men who each owed money to the same moneylender. No banks in those days much, so you borrowed from a moneylender. Extortionate rates. However, they owed very different amounts. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarius, that's the singular, was the amount that you earned as a labourer or a soldier for one day's work. So 50 was about a couple of months' work, salary, wages, and 500 was more like two years. 
pain. But despite the differences that they owe, they both have an identical problem. Neither of them can pay. They don't have any money to pay the moneylender. And the normal consequence would be you'd be thrown into jail. But then something remarkable happened. Then and now. The same resolution. So, he cancelled the debt. The debts of both. And I'm sure if Jesus stopped at this point, they'd have all thought, yeah, a bit unlikely, but good story. Then comes the test question. The sting in the tail. Jesus says, still speaking to Simon, he says, so, Simon, now, which of them will love him more? I suspect Simon can see something's coming here. His answer's a bit cautious, but he gives the correct answer. Simon replied, I suppose that the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. Jesus says, yeah, you've judged correctly. Now Jesus uses the point of the parable to pierce Simon's self-righteousness as he turns to him, turns away from him in fact, turns to the woman, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Tough question. Couldn't help seeing her. He passed judgment on her. What Simon saw, he saw a woman who was a sinner. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know was touching him, what kind of woman he is, that she's a sinner. And so Simon also saw that she was a woman you should stay away from. She's a woman who shouldn't be touched. And she shouldn't be touching a prophet. But while Simon got the right answer to the parable question, about which of the two debtors loved the generous moneylender the most, He failed to judge correctly in respect to the woman. Notice what Simon failed to see. He failed to see a woman who had experienced God's grace. In verse 42 in the parable, the word cancelled, where it says he cancelled the debts, is a lovely word and it's used in the New Testament on quite a few occasions To describe what God does when he cancels the debt of sin that we owe to him. Uh, For example, if you take a verse like Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Cancelling each other's debts just as God cancelled the debt against you. The woman knew her debt was cancelled. But Simon still saw her as a debtor. Famous preacher from the past, G. Campbell Morgan, wrote, Simon could not see that woman as she then was for looking at her as she had been. The woman knew that a huge debt, her many sins had been cancelled. And so she responded in extravagant love to the one who had forgiven her by pouring out expensive perfume on her feet, on his feet. But Simon failed to see this. He failed to see, here is a woman doing the most appropriate thing. She's a woman who was expressing her love for Jesus. 
Simon and his friends thought their actions were reprehensible and embarrassing. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, the Middle Eastern scholar, comments, her actions are not the defiling caresses of an impure woman, but the outpouring of love from a repentant woman. And of course, Jesus knew this. He knew that her actions were entirely appropriate for someone who had been forgiven so much. Very interesting, the whole story, we don't learn a name, and she doesn't say a single word in the dialogue, as far as we know, in, in, in the story. But her actions speak louder than words. But the embarrassment hasn't finished. Because Jesus then does something which is entirely inappropriate in that culture. And again, in many parts of the Middle East and the, the Third World today. If you're invited for a meal, even if it's the worst meal you've ever had, even if the hospitality is lousy, even if the cushions are hard, even if the service is terrible, you would never say anything to the host. You would say, thank you for our most wonderful meal. I really appreciate it. Jesus does something totally inappropriate. He immediately points out Simon's failure as a host to meet all the normal conventions of society. He says, Simon, you gave me no water as was the case, or a servant to come and wash my feet when I came in. You didn't kiss me on either side of the cheek, the normal customary greeting. You didn't pour olive oil on my head, which is a sign of welcome to a guest. And he says, Simon, what you failed to do, you didn't act appropriately, but this woman not only acted appropriately, she went far beyond she wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She constantly kissed my feet. And she anointed, not my head, with this expensive perfume, not cheap olive oil. But the reason Jesus points out these failings to Simon is not to shame him so that he might improve his hosting skills. No, it's to teach Simon and us something far more important about God's forgiveness. You see, here we have contrasting experiences of God's forgiveness. For the woman, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. It's not an accurate translation, it should really read, therefore she loved much. Don't get the wrong point here. The point is not that because she's given all this expensive perfume, Jesus says, right, you've earned your salvation. Rather, her forgiveness already resulted in her loving actions. The Good News Bible kind of paraphrases it. The great love she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. In contrast, for Simon, there's a different experience of forgiveness. Jesus says, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Now again, it's important to notice what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying there are big sinners and little sinners. And that Simon's a really good guy and he's only sinned a little bit so he can only experience a little bit of God's forgiveness. Rather, he has failed to see how much he has, been for, how much he has sinned. Even in this story, in judging the woman. What we call sexism. And his harsh spirit. He has little appreciation of God's forgiveness. In fact, Jesus is exaggerating the point. He's being a bit kind, really. He has not experienced at all God's forgiveness. Later on in Luke's Gospel, come to it, God willing, uh, chapter 15, we come to those three parables of lost things. Remember the, uh, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son? 
And it's stimulated by people still criticising Jesus for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And you remember Jesus tells a story, he says, there's a man who had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off and he went and brought it back and when he brought it back, everybody came together and he had a big party to celebrate. And Jesus finished by saying, in the same way I tell you, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Now what is Jesus saying? Is he saying 99% of the population is righteous? And there's only one bad person? No, he's saying, I've come to seek and save those who are lost and those who know that they're lost. Rejoicing over the lost who are found. Now, I simply ask you, as I've asked myself as I read this again, it's a wonderful story. Are you like the woman? Have you been forgiven much? Let me put it in really personal terms. Do you love Jesus? Do you? Do you love Jesus? If so, you will show it in extravagant acts of love. It follows. Or are you like Simon and think, this is just a bit embarrassing. And when these people go over the top and they sing these songs all about loving Jesus and that, I just... I don't know where they're coming from. See, that, that's why Jesus is such a deeply disturbing dinner guest. Because he comes to us and he says, Do you love me? How much do you love me? How much do you appreciate that you've been forgiven? You don't have to live a life of sin like this woman and then say, I'll, I'll do all the bad things I can and then I'll really know it is to be forgiven. Listen, you can have grown up in Charlotte Chapel, never strayed from the doors or far from God's grace, but you're still a sinner who has committed many sins and you need to know God's great forgiveness and to express it in acts of love and devotion. Are you like the woman? Are you like Simon? See, that's the final disturbing thing about this dinner party. Because it ends with a controversial claim, verses 49 and 15. We've seen in Luke's Gospel, as Jesus goes about, he's becoming an increasingly divisive person. I don't know what the results of the French election are, but apparently it's a very divisive election. Two completely different people, and it's hard to see two more different people than the two candidates. Now Jesus is like that. He's one of these people, you can't be bland about him. If you really invite him to your dinner parties, or you really begin to think about who Jesus is, maybe you start coming to church, you've been to Christianity Explored, and you've had this nice sort of opinion about Jesus that, yeah, everybody likes Jesus, yeah, he's a great religious teacher, really nice person, yeah, I'd love him to be at my dinner parties. But the more you read the Gospel stories, the more you really find out who Jesus is, the more Jesus begins to disturb your complacency, the more you realise, I've either for him or against him, there's no neutral position, there's no abstaining in the vote. And the most controversial thing of all is Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins. So that earlier in the story of the paralysed man, Jesus sees this paralysed man and instead of saying, pick up your bed and walk, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Cheer up. 
And all the religious people say, who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Yes? Now, even more controversially, he says to a woman who was a known sinner that her many sins have been forgiven. And the guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It's either a true claim and Jesus is God, more than a prophet, more than the prophet, for only God can forgive sins, or it is a false claim, Jesus is an imposter. Another commentary on Luke by Daryl Buck, American scholar, says, For Luke, it is impossible to be neutral about Jesus. One is either a Pharisee and questions Jesus' authority, or one approaches Jesus humbly, as did the sinful woman, seeking with gratitude what he offers. So, once again, in this series, we are challenged about Jesus. And I want to leave that challenge with you. Are you like Simon, seeking to judge Jesus and judge other people and think yourself fine? Or are we like the woman, aware of our great need, aware of our many sins, knowing and experiencing God's forgiveness? You see, we can experience that assurance. Jesus finishes by giving this woman great assurance. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He doesn't say your love has saved you. He doesn't say your perfume has saved you. It's very expensive. No, he says your faith in me has saved you. And only a person who has been saved through faith in Jesus can experience that peace that he promises. Peace with God and the peace of God in all circumstances. So, let's just draw to a conclusion. We began by asking, if you could choose anyone to invite to your party, past or present, who would you invite? Now, by the end of this, you may be saying, I see where you're coming from. And I think I'll do what I do when I go to a hotel and I want to get a good night's sleep. I'll stick a sign on the door of my life that says, Do not disturb. But let me leave you with something wonderful to consider. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's actually written to a church, but it, it, it says it's to anyone as well. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus as the guest who stands and waits to be invited in. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You see, Jesus could be a gatecrasher in your life. He could just smash his way in because he's got the power and authority to do so. Here's the wonderful thing. He doesn't do so. He stands at the door of your life and he knocks at the door of your life and he says, may I come in? And you'll enjoy, if you do, intimate fellowship with me, friendship with me. The famous painting, of course, of this scene by Holman Hunt, The Light of the World. It's been pointed out that in the picture, you can't see it very clearly on the screen, but if you've got the internet or look at the picture picture of Jesus standing at the door there is no handle on the outside it can only be opened from the inside open from within now notice what Jesus said if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I'll come in and eat with him and he with me some of you have been coming to Charlotte Shop for some time now some of you have heard this message before but I simply want to say to you personally this evening, Jesus Christ stands and knocks at the door of your life. If you hear his voice, 
What are you going to do? Leave him outside? Do not disturb? Go away? Or are you going to say, come back when I'm on my deathbed and I'll think about it? No. If you hear his voice, you simply respond and say, Lord, I invite you into my life. I've lived a life of sin. But I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to know that relationship with you. And as we do so, you will discover that Jesus is not only the guest who disturbs the comfortable, he's also the guest who comforts the disturbed. Let's pray together. Now as we begin our response to what God may have said to us this evening. Maybe there's someone here who's not yet a Christian. You've heard now all about Jesus. And you've been perhaps disturbed by what you've heard. But he stands at the door of your life and knocks this evening. Simply want to give you an opportunity to respond to him by inviting him into your life. Let me say a simple prayer. And if you want to echo it and you want to invite Jesus Christ into your life, then you can just repeat this quietly and God will hear you and Jesus will respond. Lord God, thank you for sending Jesus into the world to save lost people like me. Thank you for his patience in standing at the door of my life and knocking. Even though I've not heard him, very clearly in the past. This evening I want to turn from my sin, turn to him and ask him to come in, to clean up my life so that I might know what it is to know you personally, so that I might love Jesus. Lord, hear and answer. Help me to follow you the rest of my life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.